Hello, and welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. We are broadcasting out of CIUT in Toronto, and we're uh, syndicated on community stations around the country and available on almost every podcast platform. We're your hosts, David, Stefan, and Lauren. Climate change has shifted the Earth's axis. Mexico is in a terrible drought. Canada is planning to use up 16% of the world's climate budget. And Joseph Robinette Biden, Jr., held his Very Manly Climate Leaders Summit. We'll talk about all this and more, and Stefan will be interviewing Calgary-based journalist Jeremy Appel about Orphaned Wells and the Very Manly Brett Wilson. But first, Lauren wanted to make a gorgeous comment about octopuses, and Stefan wanted to complain about Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, keeping in line with our sometimes tradition that we follow, where we just kind of start off the show with something a little bit lighter, a little bit more fun. Not always fun. Anyway, just different. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This week, I've been thinking about my octopus teacher, uh, which was the documentary that won best documentary film at the Oscars this past Sunday. Um, And I watched it because it was going to be a a nomination for for the Oscars. Um, And it's like a really lovely movie. Um, which I wasn't expecting. I was kind of expecting it to either be cheesy or like, I don't know, like super duper depressing. Um, it's a lovely watch. I encourage everybody to check it out, but do be prepared for it to be a little bit upsetting. Not because the movie's like setting out to like moralize anything or like really like clearly teach the audience a lesson. It's just a really beautiful reminder that like the world around us is indeed very magical and the non-human animals that we coexist with are also very magical. And it's sad that we're dooming so many of them. Um, And our relationships with these creatures is like really messed up. And it's like so predicated on the willful misunderstanding on our part by like of like what sentience is and what intelligence is and power and worth and validity of existence and stuff. And it's just like really central to like the core of this crisis that we constructed for ourselves um and yeah the octopus teacher was just like a really nice hour and a half learning moment a nice emotional journey would highly recommend on a completely different note i've been thinking about tactics and how civil disobedience and protest must be a part of a broader movement building strategy uh and more specifically I'm thinking about this Earth Day action by Extinction Rebellion B, uh, DC, where, if you haven't seen it, they brought pink wheelbarrows with the words like love on the side, but they were filled with cow manure to drop in front of the White House to protest Biden's, quote, BS climate plan. And this action, you know, rightly so, has drawn criticism from all sides, largely because the folks involved in this protest either didn't think of or didn't care who is going to have to clean it up? You know, this is the kind of action that is exactly what led the environmental movement to have been seen as sort of coming from privilege and failing mightily uh, to be intersectional in its approach that sort of led to the, I would say, overwhelming failure of 1990s environmentalism. And, you know, civil disobedience by its nature is going to make people's lives more difficult. This is not me saying that you can't block a road or, you know, that all civil disobedience is going to be, you know, negatively harm people. But if your action exclusively harms those more vulnerable than you, do something else. You get to decide what your action entails. So don't do that. At every turn, the aim should be to connect as directly as you can back to the systems that you are opposing. You know, and think about who you are harming in your actions. I love that. Well, I, I don't love that they did that. I'd like the comment that you provided there because, <laughs> because yeah, in this case, not only is it, not only was it an action that really only served to um, inconvenience and harm and add more workload to like the, I, what I'm, what I'm assuming are like the, the persons of color custodial staff of of the white house it also just like it's 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 an ineffective action from like the standpoint of like the fact that like you're not disrupting biden's day you're not disrupting biden's staff's day you're not like you got a little bit of media attention but like how how much at what cost 
what was the desired outcome of this creative, creative civil disobedience, if it's even civil disobedience, maybe just creative direct action. Anyway, good food for thought, Stefan. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think actually, even so, it didn't even, to my understanding, is the city had to clean it up. It didn't even impact anyone at the White House because it was on city property. It was in front of the White House. So it's like just just making the people of D.C. less happy about things. XR giving us all a bad name as usual. Thanks so much, guys. XR is a global movement. They do have some good things going on in some places. I'm not anti-XR. Nobody like <laughs> nobody needs to get their knickers in a knot. I'm not anti-XR. I'm just saying like let's be thoughtful in 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 the organizing and activism that we engage in. Who are you organizing for? Who is your activism for? Yes, and as I read these um, news headlines, these climate news headlines you will hear the precise degree to which my tidy whities are now in a bunch. So, uh, here we go. The World Meteorological Organization recently released its State of the Global Climate Report, the first forward of which reads, quote, all key climate indicators and impact information provided in this report show relentless continuing climate change, an increasing occurrence and intensification of high-impact events, and severe losses and damages affecting people, societies, and economies. The second forward reads, quote, We know what needs to be done to cut emissions and adapt to climate impacts now and in the future. We have the technology to succeed. We know that to avert the worst impacts of climate change, we must keep global temperatures to within 1.5 degrees Celsius of the pre-industrial baseline. This means radical changes in all financial institutions, public and private, to ensure that they fund sustainable and resilient development for all and move away from a gray and inequitable economy. The International Energy Agency recently put out its Global Energy Review. It reads, quote, Demand for all fossil fuels is set to grow significantly in 2021. Coal demand alone is projected to increase by 60% more than all renewables combined, underpinning a rise in emissions of almost 5%, end quote. And this is why wealthy countries have to transfer resources and technologies to countries that rely on coal, for instance. We have grown rich off global imperialism and caused the problem of climate change, and now we have to pay our debts. New research published by the American Geophysical Union is suggesting that climate change, melting glaciers, and groundwater consumption have shifted the Earth's axis. Humans have caused so much water to change position on the Earth that we have redistributed Earth's mass to such an extent that as it spins, its axis is moving eastward. On an unrelated note, the Earth is currently spinning faster than it has for the past 50 years. The 28 quickest days since records began in 1960 were all recorded in 2020. Wildfires have been raging in Nepal, with 2,700 different fires recorded between November and April, which is the highest number of individual fires since records began in 2012. Fires are started for various reasons, including clearing land to encourage mushrooms to grow, but they are growing out of control this year because the Nepalese winter was anomalously dry. One article I read said they had 60% less precipitation than average, while another said it was 75%. The country as a whole is becoming hotter and drier, and there has not been significant snowfall in the mountains for the past five years. A recent study from the European Geosciences Union is predicting a major increase in Indian monsoon rainfall over the coming decades due to the climate crisis. The study reads, quote, While crops need water, especially in the initial growing period, high rainfall events during other growing states can harm the plants. 
Thus, the projected development might have serious consequences for the agriculture in India and neighboring regions. The authors also write that the Indian summer monsoon is integral to the global climate system and affects the livelihood of a fifth of the world's population. The Associated Press is reporting that 85% of Mexico is now in drought, and the capital is in the worst drought it has seen in 30 years. The last three years have been drier than average, and 75% of the lake bed of the country's second largest lake is now dry. The state of California recently released its first-ever drinking water needs assessment, stating that approximately 620 public water systems, 610 state small water systems, and 80,000 domestic wells are at risk of failing to sustainably provide a sufficient amount of safe and affordable drinking water. A report recently released by the U.S. Government Accountability Office states, quote, Since the 1960s, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement has allowed the offshore oil and gas industry to leave 97% of pipelines, that's 18,000 miles of pipeline, on the sea floor when no longer in use. No one has since been monitoring what has happened with the abandoned pipe. There are also thousands of barrels of toxic waste still piled underwater off the coast of Louisiana. The EPA let chemical companies dump this waste there in the 70s. As HuffPost reports, there are now a great many oil drilling platforms and seafloor pipelines in and around this pile of toxic waste. New York City is suing Exxon, BP, Shell, and the American Petroleum Institute for pretending to fight climate change while continuing to develop fossil fuels. You can check out clientearth.org and read their greenwashing report if you want to see the precise extent the precise extent of these companies' greenwashing efforts. Uh, the governor of Florida, meanwhile, is poised to sign a law that will require their state-funded colleges and universities to do a survey of students and faculty every year to determine if the institutions are too, quote-unquote, left-wing. The bill encourages conservative students to film their professors without their consent to provide evidence of bias against conservative ideas. Florida recently passed a different law that allows cops to declare a riot with as few as three people gathered, prevents municipalities from lowering police budgets, and protects drivers who hit protesters with cars. Oklahoma recently passed a law also protecting drivers who hit protesters with their cars. This includes police, of course, who were running into Black Lives Matter protesters with their cars all last summer. A total of 30 anti-protest bills have been enacted in the states over the past several years, and 68 are, are still pending. This is the same murderous authoritarian system that indigenous land and water defenders are facing all the time. It's also the system that oppresses climate refugees. U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris, for instance, recently agreed to send more than a dozen homeland security agents to Guatemala to make it harder for people to get to the Mexico-U.S. border. In Canada, a report recently came out of the Cascade Institute that has calculated that if Canada continues to expand oil and gas as planned, we will use up 16% of the world's remaining carbon budget. The carbon budget is how much carbon the globe can emit before we reach an abysmal climate threshold. Canada will be emitting 200 megatons of greenhouse gases in 2050, the year by which we are supposed to be quote-unquote net zero. There is still a sentiment among some Canadians, however, that Canada is so small and meaningless that our carbon reductions don't matter. And yet, Canada represents 0.48% of the global population and is now poised, apparently, to use up 16% of the world's remaining carbon budget. Here in Ontario, Doug Ford is trying to deprioritize green energy in favor of natural gas. He has already wasted over $200 million cancelling green energy projects, and spent almost $3 billion on buying natural gas plants from TC Energy, 
as Emma McIntosh notes in the National Observer. She quotes Jack Gibbons of the Ontario Clean Air Alliance, who argues that technological advancements have made it so that wind and solar are now actually cheaper than natural gas. Clean Energy Canada and Abacus Data conducted a recent poll showing that two-thirds of Canadians surveyed said they wanted Canada to be either world-leading or among the most ambitious in shifting towards clean energy and clean technology. A national survey conducted by The Conversation in January has returned with results indicating that reducing the level of government debt was by far the least important issue to the respondents, compared with creating jobs, protecting incomes, reducing income inequality, and controlling living costs. And finally, the CBC recently reported that Unifor, a major trade union that represents oil and gas workers, thinks Canada should aim for more ambitious emissions targets so long as there is a clear transition plan for workers. One extra point on the Doug Ford Ontario piece, which is in a recent article also written by a friend of the show, M. McIntosh, which points out that it's not just deprioritizing green energy that will lead to an increase of provincial emissions, but also recent modeling has shown that Highway 413 would create 17.4 million tonnes of total greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. That as a from a full life cycle analysis of both the cars that would drive on it and the construction of it. Highways are pipelines, and Canada loves both. Uh, this all leads uh, us uh, into part of what we'll talk about in the second segment when we cover the climate summit, which is that, which is by nearly all accounts, Canada should be considered a climate villain on the world stage. And unless we really dive into a just transition and find ways to curb our carbon hungry premiers, we are going to continue to fail at doing our fair share. I'm going to be a bit of a weenie, as my mother would say, and harken back to one of the very first stories that David mentioned very briefly, wherein uh, we were informed that of the last of, of the 28 quickest days since record keeping began in 1960 were all recorded in 2020. And I just want to posit that perhaps that's a small mercy that 28 of the shortest days we had were in this last year. And that that is potentially proof that there is a God and perhaps that God in their own way was trying to look out for us. Just a thought. Um, also, really quickly, before we uh, stop for break and then move into our second segment, um, as an Ontario-based show, I'd be really remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that today the provincial government enacted um, paid sick days, which uh, theoretically you're like, woo, great, that's fantastic. Not so much. It was three days. Um, and, and I do just want to kind of take our precious airtime to state the obvious. Three days isn't enough, not least of which because COVID lasts very slightly longer than three days. The incubation period alone is like, what, like two weeks, five days to two, five day, five to 14 days. So like, yeah, three days is, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inadequate three days is inadequate. Um, and like maddeningly. So, so that's, that's just the note I wanted to leave us on before we lay our burdens at the feet of the Lord. I went to Christian camp. I can I can do this all day. Great. Um, oh, we we have uh, right. we went to Christian baseball camp. So if you've got there's like I went to I went to Christian nature camp. So it was like a lot of time oh, spent God. in the woods, being like, "Do you feel God?" And it was like, "Yeah, I do." Or like like I vividly remember going on like canoe trips in Algonquin Park, and like and like a group of probably like five or six canoes full of like really really geeky teenagers all like singing Jesus songs as we like paddled in unison. Quite the, <laughs> quite the phenomena. Excellent. We'll have to recall some of those and sing some of those on the show. I can't honestly, as an aside, this is complete aside. The fact that 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 the Earth actually changes how fast it's spinning is not a thing I knew until until this story existed. I was like, what? 
No, I thought that was only something that happened in like Superman comics when he's trying to like turn back time and he's like yeah. spinning anyway. Yeah, didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Is yeah. it climate related? I'm assuming it is. I mean, it is It is atmospheric changes. It is current ocean current changes, et cetera, all these different things. But I mean, just the simply the people reporting on it made no particular causal connection. They just mm. said that this is happening now. It's just God. Okay. It happens all the time. Okay. The hand of the Lord. I just sort of imagined it being like, you know, we had smoothed out the earth, you know, so he was like spinning faster. <laughs> the flat earthers have a point. Huh? Mm. It's more aerodynamic now, having uh, leveled those mountains for the Bozite. Yeah. All right. Now we are going to go to a short break and come back and discuss the Biden Leaders Summit.
Thank you. That was a song called 4AM in Toronto by Junior T. Check them out. Instagram, JuniorT35, www.juniorT.com, and Twitter, JuniorT of SB. That's J-U-N-I-A dash T. Thank you. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. held his Global Climate Leaders Summit on the 22nd and 23rd of April, where he expressed a desire to build a healthier and more prosperous economy, which is fairer and cleaner. He argued that green investment will make any country more competitive, and that we should run that race and win more. His approach is focused on economic growth and technological innovation, pledging to cut U.S. emissions in half by 2030. Many people are, of course, relieved that the U.S. is back in the cockpit with their hands on that joystick. They are... That they they, are. That's egregious. <laughs> Come on. We air during the day. Children are listening. Oh, well, that's the end of it, too. I forgot. I didn't realize, I didn't realize we had to like segue into us saying words now. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I want to give uh, credit where credit is due to us from last week, who gave our pre-suppositions uh, about how we would respond to the Canadian target, which is, I would, like, the only thing I didn't expect from the Canadian target, which, by the way, is 40 to 45% reduction by, by 2030, is the concept that you get to do a range. That doesn't make any sense. Like, if you're doing a range... The answer is the lowest number in the range. If Trudeau came out and said his goal was to do it between 40 and 100%, no one is presuming you're going to make 100%. You're going to hit the lowest of the range. Ranges don't work in this conversation. It's not even a reasonable inclusion. No, exactly. Because the because the idea is, I think the expectation with any target should be that your target is your floor. So there's yeah. no point in stating your ceiling because like the sky's the limit, baby. It's like make it or break it. Yeah. Yeah, like the goal is to get to 100 eventually. So yeah, beating 40 is obviously the goal. <laughs> like, Yeah, no, it's so like this whole thing there was for this Biden summit, it was like two days of like meetings and plenaries and announcements. And like I fully stopped paying attention after 9 a.m. on day one because that was after Trudeau came out with this new target. And like, yeah, it's not a target at all. It's another window. And this announcement was like from from the climate community of course so many press releases were put out so many interviews were done and basically like what you can boil it down to is an acknowledgement that like yep an increase is an increase but not this is not one worthy of praise given that like i know what angos say isn't the be all and end all but basically everybody was pretty unanimously calling for a reduction of like like a minimum domestic target of 60 percent reduction by 2030 um, below 2005 levels, because that's basically been determined what it will take to like, a get us on track for a 1.5 C world with like minimal overshoot B get us to net zero without relying like egregiously on carbon, uh, on like carbon capture, um, and removals and like C encompasses like kind of what like our quote unquote fair share is as like historically high emitters. Um, and keep in mind that like to many people who are citing this 60% reduction, that's just the domestic side of things. The idea is that theoretically we should also be contributing a reduction amounting to like six, like a, a further 80% reduction internationally in order to be like really doing our part. So this window, even if, even if you are taking the high end of that window, 45, say, say the 40 is just a red herring. It's a distraction so that when they come through with 45, it's like, wow, good job. You hit the high end of your window. 45 is still is still embarrassingly low. It's lower than the states. It's lower than what the United States is doing. And I'm sorry, like Biden, you're you're giving it a college try, but like the United States will and is never going to be a climate leader. So the fact that our target is lower than theirs is embarrassing, not only on like like a political level, but like I don't know. I feel like Trudeau's like writing his 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 paragraph in textbooks 30 years from now is going to be like this guy freaking sucked you guys 
His <laughs> targets were so lame. Pardon, sorry, pardon my use of the term. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say lame. That's Abel's language. But anyway, but then there was also this sort of like really like sporadically heard kind of annoying discourse where people were uh, saying that like, oh, folks are getting too caught up in the number. It's all about the plan. Don't worry or think about the number. It's all about the plan. And at the end of the day, all I can really do is like quote the little girl in those old El Paso commercials who was like, why not both? It's like, you need both. You need a plan. You need a target. And you also need like little mini interim goals to make sure you're on track. We need all of these things. And bottom line, 40 to 45% isn't it, honey. We need better. Yeah. And a couple other pieces from the summit, which is the first that, as we mentioned, the U.S. did put up a big number in terms of percentage of emissions to decrease. But as David Roberts, a longtime climate reporter, notes over on Vox, the targets are actually deceptively weaker than they appear, which he connects to the fact that they aren't actually connected to any policy levers and that without significant changes to the Senate and Supreme Court, Biden will have a near impossible time passing legislation to actually meet these targets. And so it's, it's almost the opposite side of what you're saying, Lauren. It's like, here's a great target. Now, where's our policy? And we've covered in the show. There's a bunch of money he's putting out and infrastructure and stuff like that. But like none of what's currently out there is enough to get to the target that he's set. A couple other things from the thing, just so we will know, there were some other improved targets mentioned. I think Japan improved theirs. Brazil started saying words that weren't terrible and yet don't trust that at all, obviously. I almost made Lauren do a spit take because I said those words as she was drinking. I'm sorry. And honestly, the biggest news, which isn't, which I don't think landed super strongly uh, in most places, was that China announced that it will begin phasing out coal between 2026 and 2030, and that it, they think emissions should peak in 2025, which, given, you know, where we have been, and given all of the people pointing out, well, why isn't China doing enough? Well, here's it really trying to take, starting to take this really seriously, and so, Get ready, conservatives. Your number one argument is beginning to fall. So you better have a new one coming soon. Don't worry. They'll have another. They're, they're, they're people that like, what was it? That like weird cap lobby group that was like secretly put together over COVID. They're in a back room somewhere working on their new straw man argument. Can't wait to hear it, guys. <laughs> Just to hammer it down again briefly. So the, the Trudeau plan uh, is aiming for 40 to 45% reductions by 2030. Yes. And this is an abandonment of a 1.5 degrees Celsius goal. From what I understand, from what I've been told as somebody like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not the one who's out there doing the modeling myself, but from what I understand, yes, this target is not in line with, um, effectively getting us to zero by 2050 without a bunch of overshoot which means that it also isn't in line with getting us to 1.5 or like to, to keeping us within the 1.5 degree bubble. So Justin Trudeau is, is courting catastrophe with this plan. Not just like he's swiping right to use like dating. Get it? You said courting. I said swiping. Uh, Tinder. Get it? Come on, fellas. He, he's trying to get catastrophe to be interested in him <laughs> via pictures of himself with his car. Yeah. Yeah, well, you could say. All right. So um, there was a book, continuing with the Biden summit, there was a book recently released by an organization called The Red Nation, who streamed their book launch online as the Biden summit was starting on the 22nd. The book is called The Red Deal, and it is a political program for liberation that emerges from the oldest class struggle in the Americas, the indigenous fight for decolonization. The speakers at the launch argued that Biden's, that Biden's leaders' summit amounts to climate imperialism. Melanie Yazzie of the Navajo Nation, co-founder of the Red Nation, stated, quote, Ruling class politicians are continuing to try to find solutions that are consistent with maintaining the unequal relations of development and exploitation and extraction that make capitalism possible. Jennifer Marley of the Pueblo of San Ildefonso argued that their system, when it was thriving, distributed resources in a way that ensured that no wealthy class could form. Another co-founder of the Red Nation, Nick Estes, said, quote, 
We're challenging the idea that the United States should be leading by example to the rest of the world, when really the United States needs to be paying its debts to the rest of the world. He noted that indigenous people are directly challenging 27% of carbon emissions in Canada and the U.S. because of all the fossil fuel projects they're standing against, saying, quote, Half a billion metric tons of carbon emissions are currently in question because indigenous movements are the most confrontational arm of the environmental justice movement right now. He also noted that Biden's plan says nothing about limiting consumption and therefore means more resource extraction and argued that those most responsible cannot be in charge of the transition. And he also said, quote, in Arizona, for instance, where Biden overwhelmingly won the native vote, the Forest Service in the coming months could actually designate an Apache sacred site, also known as Oak Flat, as a sacrifice zone for this green energy revolution that he proposes. Yeah, so this is a book that I, well, not only myself, a lot of people are really, really looking forward to reading. Um, I believe it went out on sale um, sort of like south of the colonial border on the 20th of April. And it is going on sale on this side of the colonial border on the 30th. So actually the day that this comes out. So if you're listening to this live on Friday, the 30th, um, it will be available for order um, or in some local bookstores that day. So like use it as an opportunity to support your local bookstore, support your local bookseller and pick up some really awesome um, lit as well, because it contains a whole lot of fantastic information that we should probably all know. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, sorry. It's called the red deal. And one thing I, w- I will point out, uh, if you're listening Biden Trudeau, cause you both definitely listen to the show, you know, uh, whenever we're talking about trying to reduce emissions, the biggest climate actions that, that the biggest climate actions that you can make unilaterally is stopping fossil fuel infrastructure. Almost everywhere you turn, it's, you know, jurisdictional issues in regards to, you know, Ontario wants to build Highway 413 or Alberta wants to keep supporting its oil, the oil sands. But the ability to stop Dakota Access, TMX and more sit directly in the hands of these leaders who are claiming to take this seriously. And so you can do this. It can be a huge climate impact. It's the beginning of of actually treating this like a nation to nation relationship and is desperately needed. So do it now. We are stoked to welcome back Jeremy Appel, Calgary-based journalist and co-host of the Forgotten Corner and Big Shiny Takes podcasts. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Stefan. Great to be here. Yeah, welcome back. And we're here to talk about a, a story which you published last week We've covered Orphan Wells a number of times on the show, and this is sort of bringing it to a finer point with our particular, I would say, character uh, out in the West, Brett Wilson. And so for those people who may not be fully aware or may not be aware at all of Brett Wilson, A, you're probably lucky, but B, <laughs> important for the story. So maybe you can start by explaining who Brett Wilson is and why he matters. Yeah, my apologies for introducing your uh, <laughs> listeners to this character. But so the guy's name is W. Brett Wilson. I don't know what the W stands for. It's kind of mysterious. But he's he's basically this like minor Calgary celebrity. He was at one point a panelist on Dragon's Den. So he was a dragon. In fact, some people are tweeting out my story, which we'll get to with the hashtag deadbeat dragon, which I uh, <laughs> found quite heartwarming. And he's also part owner of Nashville Predators. He's like a big business guy. He's become quite notorious in recent years for his Twitter presence. I think most notably in what your listeners may appreciate to get a sense of him is that he called uh, environmentalists slimy bastards who should be hanged for treason. And then when someone asked him, like, whoa, are, are you advocating for violence against your political opponents? He was essentially like, yeah, what do you suggest we do with them? So this is a guy who's got a lot of money. He's quite 
influential in Alberta conservatives. I mean, Alberta conservatives are like, might as well be Republicans, right? I mean, they're well to the right of, say, a conservative in like the suburbs of the GTA, you know? But he um, recently, uh, more recently, like a couple of years ago, got some heat for accusing Calgary mayor uh, Nahed Nenshi, who's the first Muslim mayor in Canada, and I think North America, for winning his previous re-election in 2017 by playing the race card. There was a swift backlash against that. I think that was sort of a bridge too far. And a comedian uh, named Andrew Fung called for a boycott of his not-for-profits. And then the Nashville Predators hockey team he is part owner of issued a statement denouncing him. And then he apologized unreservedly. But I mean, if you follow him on Twitter and don't, but I'm just <laughs> yeah, saying don't. if you go really to don't. his page, he's still at it. He's likes Donald Trump. He's convinced that Justin Trudeau has a personal vendetta against the oil and gas industry. And the focus of my story is on a small oil and gas company that Brett Wilson essentially owned called Foreign Energy. He was its single largest shareholder. It went bankrupt in 2017. And he was, at the time, he was its single largest shareholder. He owned something like 16% of its shares. And he was chairman of its board of directors. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say it was his company. Right. among other people's. And so when this company left bankrupt, they left several orphan wells to be cleaned up by Alberta's Orphan Well Association, which is in theory, and it claims that it's funded by industry sort of pooling its resources together. But since 2008, the 2018, it's been majority subsidized by the government, provincial and federal. And so there's a, there's a certain irony there of this hysterical critic of Trudeau based on like right-wing uh, Western Canadian mythology that the East is out to get us in our, our oil and gas industry Versus the fact that Trudeau, who um, last year offered $200 million to the Orphan Well Association, is subsidizing his garbage, right? His, uh, his junk assets. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's useful maybe here to jump in and get a definition of what an orphan well is. Yeah. So orphan well is a well that has lived out its usefulness and isn't, there's no oil left there. And so when a company goes bankrupt, they have to, of course, sell off all their assets in order to pay back their creditors. These orphan wells, though, are essentially the junk that can't be sold. So when it went bankrupt, there were 31 inactive wells. Not all inactive wells, though, require closure, right? Some of them have already been closed. And so of these 31, 25 required closure. And of those 25, 16 were deemed orphan wells. Now, the orphan well, the amount of orphan wells in the Orphan Well Association inventory keeps on increasing at the same time as it becomes increasingly publicly funded. So the distinction between inactive wells that are orphans and wells that are simply inactive is artificial. And there are oil and gas companies that will purchase abandoned wells to sort of beef up their uh, portfolio, right? And make it appear like they have all these assets so they can raise capital more effectively. So these wells, once they're inactive, they go to the Alberta Energy Regulator and then the AER, which is a lot of work, has been written on how it's essentially been captured by the industry, then takes these wells and dumps them on the Orphan Well Association, which again is in theory funded by industry, but in practice, it's increasingly being funded by the public. And that number is 
consistently increasing as oil and gas companies go broke and say, oh, sorry, we can't pay for this. You know, times are tough. And then, you know, a lot of executives like Wilson can just walk away from it and move on to the next money-making scheme. Yeah. In the past, there was there have been reports that have ascribed the amount of money that it would take to clean a number of wells in, I don't want to say trillions, but it was in the many billions, the last report I saw that was sort of claiming that this was a, a liability that was sort of existed within Alberta, but not on its books at, as we speak. And the sort of government was sort of like, no, look, we have this plan that will help that industry pays to clean it up. And then more and more don't get cleaned up or end up in this thing. And yeah, we covered that $200 million transfer when it happened, you know, as part of this first stimulus package that the Trudeau government put forward. And I remember part of the criticism of that was that it was for, you know, this fund rather than there's a whole other subset of ones that the government actually has to do. And this money actually went basically to industry. And it was, it was a way to pretend that it was green jobs because they'd have to clean this up. Yeah. And I, I think it's a perfect example of privatizing profit and then socializing risk. Yeah, 100%. Uh, and, and I mean, there's just not that much profit anymore to privatize, which, you know, I think makes this matter a lot more urgent because, again, more and more uh, small oil and gas companies, the big companies, I think, tend to be more responsible just because yeah. they have more resources to do so, not because they're, you know, have goodness in their hearts. <laughs> yeah. And are more willing to play ball on things like carbon pricing, which has its own set of inadequacies. But the small-time oil and gas companies like foreign energy, I mean, they're just notorious for, you know, not just dumping these assets on the public, but also promoting, you know, climate science denial and really sort of your stereotypical, like, far-right Albert. Right. Is a lot of these junior oil and gas CEOs, but right. obviously there are some who are come by like their that. work honestly. Well, anything else in the story that we missed that you want? Yes. To so after Foreign went bankrupt, like later that year, near the end of the year, the Alberta Energy Regulator issued an environmental protection order against Foreign for these sixteen wells. It was never enforced. And the AER has the means with which to sanction individual executives from companies who don't abide by their orders and prohibit them from owning oil and gas licenses in the future. They didn't do this for Brett Wilson. So, I mean, he could become the major investor in the new oil and gas company in the future and, you know, rinse and repeat. And... I mean, part of that is to do with the fact that this stipulation is quite unusual because, you know, typically in law, you have a complete separation between corporations and the individuals on their board. So this sort of folds those into each other. And the AER, when I asked them about it, said that, well, there's nothing they could do about it because they issued the protection order after foreign went into insolvency. So there's technically no executives to hold accountable. And one more that I think it's very much worth pointing out is that the Alberta Exchange Commission, like the week after Forent went broke, issued a cease trade order because the company hadn't filed its financials, its audited financial statements for 2016, the final year of its existence. Now, I found through looking at newspaper archives that in 2016, they were definitely wheeling and dealing and making sales that should have been going to their creditors. And sitting on their audit committee was Brett Wilson. So I think that it is very fair to say that he is personally responsible for what Foreign did in terms of being its single largest shareholder sitting on its board of directors and being on the audit committee and not providing audited financial statements while at the same time the company is selling off assets. That makes sense. Last question, and I think it's a question I try to end with, especially with journalists who sort of 
survey the field, which is what should people be paying attention to in terms of stories like this? Not the Brett Wilson beat specifically, but maybe in the, the beat of the ways that oil industry has captured Alberta and our governments or in the issue of wells specifically? Well, I think it's no secret that Alberta's provincial governments, including the New Democrats, who were in power from 2015 to 2019, are captured by the industry. Uh, there's a really good book by former Alberta Liberal Party leader, who was once the leader of opposition, called Oil's Deep State, that details how it's captured both the provincial and federal governments. But I think emphasis should be on federal government because they've been so successful at greenwashing. And Trudeau is seen internationally as this leader who takes climate change seriously, in which he does in words, but in deeds, it's a lot more subsidizing the industry. And I think the Orphan Well Association is a microcosm of that, but a significant one. Yeah, man, I got to say, for someone who hates Alberta, quote unquote, he certainly sends a ton of money there. There's yeah. like, a, like the latest, you know, 16 billion over the past year in oil and gas subsidies, which I guess would also go to Saskatchewan. So I don't want to entirely say it's only Alberta. It's mostly Alberta. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jeremy Appel, Calgary-based journalist and co-host of the Forgotten Corner in Big Shiny Takes podcasts. You can find him on Twitter at Jeremy Appel 1025. Thank you so much for being here, Jeremy, and would love to have you back on whenever maybe a on Brett Wilson thing happens. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not like a Brett Wilson scholar, so I'm sure there will be uh, plenty of that. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week.